Um, had the privilege of uh, Friday, I landed at 1 a.m. in South Carolina, spoke at uh, 9.55, and caught a flight back and landed at LAX by 6 p.m. the same day. So, yeah. And while I was there, uh, and I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm tough. I'm burning the candle at both ends. While I was there, uh, Bob and Liz McEwen, we passed each other because they arrived on uh, Thursday and did the presentation. Uh, I think he introduced uh, Senator Cruz, and then he did his presentation. Um, and then he's heading to the CNP, the Council on National Policy in San Diego, and I'll be joining him later in the week for that. Uh, he is the chairman of the CNP, and he's also a congressman. Um, from the great state of Ohio, and uh, served with Reagan. Uh, amazing man, amazing historian, married to an amazing woman, Liz McEwen. She is like sea biscuit. She is tiny, but she is mighty. She's actually standing right now. You don't realize that. But uh, um, I asked uh, Bob McEwen to share the presentation that deeply touched me. This isn't one he has on video, so we're going to videotape it, and we're going to have it available uh, and give it to him so he can sell it. We'll do as many copies as you like. We'll provide that for you, and, um, and that's it. So you better have your seatbelts on. For those of you who came to church saying, well, I'm looking forward to a Bible study, uh, it's not going to be a Bible study today. It's going to be a history lesson, and it comes out of First Chronicles uh, chapter 12, when David was assembling his government, he put in position men's, uh, men called the sons of Issachar. And they were men who understood the times and Israel's role in those critical times. And as Christians, we, we need to study to show ourselves approved. We need to understand the times. And we're in a crisis in our country. And for those of you who think that uh, this, this shouldn't take place in a church, well, you're sorely mistaken. Uh, there's, there's, this should be the place where it occurs the most. And since 1954, uh, the church has abdicated its responsibility for educating the populace. And we have removed ourselves from the civic arena. And good government happens with good people. And, and government needs good people. And good government, uh, and, and, and good people need good government. And so I am so blessed by this man. He has labored in the civic arena as a believer, a Christian. He hasn't uh, given up. He's worked tirelessly and when you hear this presentation, you will be encouraged, you'll be strengthened, and you'll be blown away. So without any further ado, welcome my good friend, Congressman Bob McEwen. Three, four, five. Thank you. Am I really? Okay, good. Thank you. You folks are so fortunate to have Rob McCoy as your pastor. As I He has... Um, my... Wife dated a fellow who was a pastor, the son of a pastor of a very large church. Hundreds of people would come, and when he would speak, she said he would look at this corner, and then he would swing back. He'd look at that corner, and he'd look. And that's all he did was was just this boring, monotonous presentation. And uh, you have a pastor that knows how to communicate, who knows what needs to be talked about, and and says it in such an engaging manner that you remember it. And um, you're just really, really fortunate. And I'm honored to to be here a little bit with you as well. Um, if you meet a person who's lost their memory, it's really sad. It's extremely sad. They don't know who they are. And they don't, they don't, they can't communicate to you. And a nation that loses its memory is really sad. It doesn't know where it's going or what it's doing. And we are in the process. And also, it creates fear. Fear comes from the unknown. You mentioned that Tom is having his heart bypass tomorrow. That's frightening. 
And what the surgeons will try to do is explain exactly what's going to happen. Here's, a, here's what's going to happen when you come out of surgery. Here's the way you're going to feel. Because knowledge drives away fear. You hear a large noise in the middle of the night. You're scared to death. What's happening? You get flip on the light. You see the cat knocked over the flower pot. Knowledge drives away fear. And so what I want to do is right now uh, our country is fearful. We don't know where we're going. We don't remember our past. We don't understand how it fits together. And therefore, we're frightened of the future. Let me just tell you, we don't need to be. This has happened a lot before. But we had folks that understood who we were. That is, that who God was and what part. We've tried to, to be all things to all men to where we don't stand for anything anymore. And uh, as a result, we, we miss things. Lizzie, is my cell phone laying there? Just a second. I, I laid it there so I'd be sure and bring it up with me. She, she mentioned that... Thank you, sweetheart. You don't need... <laughs> um, the, the, some very, very nasty things were, were written about Scalia, uh, if you followed it. And, and in case you want to know why, why would they do that? Why? It's because there is a spiritual war going on. And if we don't understand the spiritual war, then we miss everything else doesn't seem to fit. We think it's political or it's mechanical or it's, or it's physical. It, it, it's not. Here, here's a quote from, from Nino Scalia. God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Well, you can understand. Satan wouldn't like that very much. And so they rejoice when, when he would be taken off, off the earth. We are, all of life is either physical or spiritual. And so people that are spiritually dead or that's spiritual, I'm not interested in that, they're discombobulated because everything in life is either physical or spiritual. And wisdom is the capacity to distinguish which is which. For example, a painting is physical. But the beauty that it gives off is spiritual. And spiritual things you can't quantify, you can't weigh it, you can't package it. And it's not diminished by how many people consume it. I mentioned that uh, we're having a new experience in our family. It's, it's, we have these things that are called grandchildren. And, uh, and all my life, I've been curious as to why grandparents are so goofy about their grandchildren. <laughs> I mean, they always want to show you pictures and things. You know, children are children. And yet, at grandparents, they go off the rails, and I discovered why. My grandchildren worship me. <laughs> they think I'm the greatest thing in the world. In fact, I, I just got one, I, it's, whatever the background is on your telephone, I have a picture of these two little girls that are there hugging each other, just looking up, just so cute, can't stand it. They came in their mother's kitchen and said, we want to send a picture to granddad. And so they just stood there, and she took the picture and emailed. She said, they just wanted to say hi to you. They live in Texas. And, and the, the point is that when, when I'm with them, I have this overwhelming love. <laughs> it just, but it doesn't diminish love for their mother. Or their grandmother, or anybody else, because love is spiritual. Suppose we wanted to build a building. A building is physical. 
Suppose we had the spiritual tools. We had love and joy and peace. And we all go over here and man, we're just going to have all this love and all this joy and we're going to build this building. You can't build physical buildings with spiritual tools. Neither can you achieve spiritual ends with physical tools. If I just got a new new car, then I'll be happy. If we put a new kitchen, we had a swimming pool, then then we would be happy, you know. And just if we just take this pill or just shoot this up and just smoke this, we'll be at peace, man. We'll be at peace. Doing physical things will not achieve spiritual ends because peace is spiritual, love is spiritual, joy is spiritual. Trying to achieve peace in the world and ignore the Prince of Peace. The problem with Israel is not water rights in the Golan. <laughs> Unless you're spiritually dead, then you think that you can achieve it. By so it's important to understand that there's a spiritual battle. The thrust, the point of the spear is a place called the United States of America. It is the standard for righteousness in the world. Everyone knows if they can but appeal to that, they'll be, they'll be treated fairly. There is a battle to destroy America. And the major force at this time is Islam. And Islam has done so much over the years that if we were aware of it, we could see it. For example, we studied in history books that Columbus discovered America because he wanted to find a way to get east by sailing west. Did did we not have all that on our test? Why did he want, when, when here's Europe and here's China, why would you want to go clear around the world? Well, it's because the Muslims were raiding all of the trade routes such that they destroyed the trade and made it such that they were trying to find a way to get east by sailing west. You can go on and on with example after example of the impact. When when Thomas Jefferson became president of the United States, what was the theme of the battle, of, of the campaign? Millions for defense, not a dime for tribute. 20% of the U.S. budget of America was going to pay off, quote, Barbary pirates. What were Barbary pirates? They were Muslims that were attacking Christian ships. And we were trying to bribe them, as they do, because they would would steal people, as we know that they do, and chop off their heads. They're big on decapitation. And slavery. There's two things that they were specialists at. And and, uh, Jefferson said, enough, we're not doing that. And so he formed the United States Marines, which everybody knows the birthday and when it was formed. He built ships for the purpose of going over there and going to battle. This little country with nothing is going to go to war in order to protect us. And so throughout our history, when we, take, when we take the spiritual part out of it, it doesn't quite fit together. So let's walk through a, a couple of things as best we can to see if we can catch it up to date as to where we are today. This is the early church age. All of these are the churches that were mentioned in, in Revelation. All of this area became very Christian. Every Syria area was the first nation to have be 100% Christian. But uh, shortly thereafter, in about 600 AD, um, Mr. Muhammad came along and he ha- engaged in three things. He, was, he called himself a religious leader, but he was actually a political leader and a military leader. And so he exam- he. He thrust the church, either they converted or you killed them. And uh, he he was very effective today because he calls itself a a religion, when actually Islam is a political and military force in the world. 
And wherever they take over, they control the economic system and they control the political system. And that's what Sharia law is. It is legal system. That's why when, when uh, in, in Oklahoma, when the state legislature said we do not abide by Sharia law, we abide by the American law. And, and uh, Corbe- Cor- Corbert and all those folks ridiculed that. The fact is that the American law which is based on the British law, is based on the word of God, of right and wrong. That's why you swear, God saved this honorable court. There has to be a starting plate. Sharia law doesn't do that. They do what is in the best interest of furthering their political system. That's the law that they have, and that is incompatible with America and America's system. That's why our founders had everyone swear allegiance on the Bible. There's only been two people that haven't, both current United States members of Congress, swore allegiance on the Koran. The CIA director, by the way, the president's choice to run the CIA is also uh, a Muslim, and he would not, but he, he, Obama is, is slicker. He knows what he's doing. But the, the CIA director, he, he swore on the Constitution, so that because he wouldn't touch the Bible. The fact is that that's where America was, in, was founded, and that's what this, this battle is about. This is very similar to what we fought with communism for so long. But communism, recognized, was a political force and a military force, but it didn't pretend to be a religious force, which it was, by the way. It had its leaders and had its statues and its patron saints, and it destroyed the churches. And it was a, but we didn't see it as such, and so we, we confronted it. Islam pretends to be a religion and focuses on the religion part, which allows it a great deal more leeway. Shortly before the... Uh, uh, Mohammed was born in 600. This was the, the Byzantine Empire. Byzantine is, was the Eastern Church. As you remember, in 1250, uh, they, they had the Great Schism. And so the Eastern Orthodox became, uh, was headquartered in Constantinople. And then the Catholic Church was headed in Rome. But they were, they were all Christian. When Mohammed began spreading Islam, they destroyed the churches. That is, they went and bulldozed and killed them and destroyed any civilization that was there. The greatest library in the history of the world. I'm going to clear my throat and I apologize for this. The greatest um, library ever was the library at Alexandria. You remember they had to make the paper, which was a real challenge. It actually came from China. They then had to hand record it and bind it. And so when, when the Muslims overran Alexandria, they then took those books and burned them in the Turkish baths to heat the water. They said any book written before the Koran was obsolete, any book written after the Koran was no longer necessary. They then, uh, Constantinople, the, just as St. Peter's is the head of the Catholic Church at, at Vatican Square, so in uh, Constantinople, was the St. Sophia, the largest church in the world. When the Muslims take over something, they turn it into a mosque. And so at the, uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where the temple was, when they conquered that, they put a mosque on top of it. And they converted this church into a, uh, a mosque. And as you know, at, at uh, Ground Zero in New York, they wanted to put a, a mosque where they were torn down the, the buildings. It's been their tradition. And then they were able to continue to advance until finally they reached up to the shores of Vienna. And after a one-year siege, they were not able to break into Europe, but that was their effort. And finally, uh, John Sobieski, who was the head of Poland, uh, and he 
convinced the President Gustav, or King Gustav of Sweden to join him. And those Christian armies came down and broke the siege of Vienna at the Battle of Vienna on September 11th, 1683. And that was the high water mark of the, of the Muslim march into Europe. And so as they wanted to reignite that effort, they didn't choose that day by flipping a coin. They chose the day of those folks have now for 400 years refused to overtake Europe and America, and we're going to do it. In 1689, uh, just three years, six years later, down in, in, uh, in uh, Serbia, uh, there was the Battle of Kosovo. Kosovo to this day is still Muslim, but the battle against the Serbian church was at the Battle of Kosovo, and that picture, if you've ever been to a Serbian restaurant, anybody have any Serbian friends? If you have a Serbian friend, you will see this picture in their house. If you go to a Serbian restaurant, you'll see it on the wall. Serbians to this day often part in the spirit of Kosovo, which they remember the victory of the Christian church, and which is able to, to free itself from the Islamic in, invasion in 1689. And that is, is, was its current condition, uh, and up until the time, let's fast forward, we'll go forward 100 years and go back 100 years and get to, to World War I, in which Europe was, uh, the Habsburg Empire and the Ottoman Empire went to war in, in 1914. And you recall, this is where the two of them met, and then this is the Balkan region where the Catholics in Slovenia and Croatia and then the Serbian, uh, the Orthodox Church, then you had the Muslim here. And so this Balkan area was constantly at war. If you look up B in the dictionary, if you look up Balkan, it, under B it says, it says um, um, fratricide. It's where they, they kill each other all the time. Let me just put that as a side for a as, as I'll show you, after World War I, they've tried to put these all together. In 1985, Tito, who was the head of that, died. And over the next three and a half years, those countries all got independence again, and then they started to have a war again. And so all the leaders of those countries in Croatia and, and Serbia and all, were all World War II leaders. Between 1985, 87 to 1994 or so, they all died. Uh, they were all World War II elderly gentlemen. They were all replaced with a bunch of 40-year-olds. And they said, you know, probably 2,000 years of this, of fighting or 1,400 years is probably adequate. You know, could we just kind of quit this? And they didn't know quite how to do it. And, uh, and so they looked to America. And there was, we have a little Bible study that met in my office, four of us, and, and the person that encouraged us to do it, he encouraged all the Bible groups to take an area of the world as an area of interest, whether it be Africa or whether it be South America or whatever. And so we decided that we would take the Balkan region. And so once a year, we would would have a, a gathering, but actually we did more than that. We went back and forth. As these new countries were being formed, as the parliaments were being formed, we would explain to them that only Christ is the one that can bring everybody together. And if they would meet in the name of Jesus, now not baptism or not anything else, just Jesus, and that if you weren't allowed to talk politics, but if you would meet once a week for lunch and you could talk about your family, your personal struggles, and a teaching of Jesus, that if you would do that for a year, then I promised you supernatural things would happen. And so we started these little prayer groups in each one of, each one of those countries, and now it's, it's grown significantly to the point that now they, they have what is called a Balkan gathering every year, and it's every May 27th, 28th, and 29th. And uh, last year, Serbia, or last year, um, uh, 
Romania was the host, and this year Serbia will be the host. And Liz and I have gone now for 20-some years since we've started that. But there, the, the Spirit of Jesus is the only answer <laughs> to, to what all that is. <clears throat> but that is really something to put on the shelf. Let's go back four, 1,400 years. So uh, so in, at the end of World War, at the, in 1914, the, the Habsburg crown prince, uh, Franz Ferdinand, uh, came down and he was visiting in Sarajevo with his wife, and uh, a fellow by the name of Princep decided he wanted to kill him because he didn't want to be a part of the Habsburg Empire. And so he, he goes to shoot him, and he misses and kills the bodyguard and injures a couple others. And he's sitting in a restaurant. The restaurant is still there, by the way. And uh, he, he's sitting there at this table, and, and he's disappointed that he didn't create and kill anybody. And uh, while he's, he looks up, and on the other side of the window, which is just like three or four feet away, is this limousine where these guys are trying to turn into the alley to go back to the hospital to visit the bodyguards that were injured. And, and the limo can't get in there. The limo's on display, by the way. You can still see it. And, and it, it took two or three times going back and forth, and he's thinking, you know, God must want me to kill these people. So he, he, he gets out, and he goes out, and he hops up on the running board and kills the two of them. And then uh, with that, there's a threat to Serbia that they must apologize. And in a book called The Guns of August, a series of errors happened back and forth over 30 days. And that by the end of August 1914, the entire world is at war. And uh, it's, it's worse than you can imagine. Most of the troubles that we have today are a byproduct of that day, June 28th, 1914, and then what happened in the consequence of the nations mobilizing all during August. At the end, uh, that goes on for three years. Finally, uh, the United States, in 1916, we had an election, and Woodrow Wilson said, we (laughs) kept you... You got some drugs for me, bro? Thank you. Thank you, you, Joe. Uh, And you can bring my my chair over here, too, if you will, Joe. Thank you, bro. Um, and so in, in 1916, Wilson was reelected on the theme, he kept us out of war. So he's sworn in as, for president again at March 3rd, 1917. But on April 1st, not even a month later, he issues a war statement. And the country declares war. The United States comes in on the side of Britain and France and others. Uh, it takes us a while. We're not good at war. We don't maintain an army and things. And so all during 1917, we don't do anything. In fact, we don't even arrive until May of 1918. And once we arrive, our, we go into battle. The first thing is May 28th, 1918. And so we then march through France and headed towards Germany in June, July, August, September, October. And so on, on November 11th, Veterans Day, they declared a, an armistice. They said, all right, we see what's happening. We're going to lose this. And so they declared an armistice. Never did declare peace or end the war, but they had the big four, Clemenceau, Lloyd George from Britain, and uh, Woodrow Wilson from the United States. They wrote the peace treaty of the First World War, 1919. And they went around and, and took those areas that had been controlled by the Ottoman. Now, the leader of the world was Britain. And so the United States and all the rest of the world followed Britain. You only have one leader at a time. And, and the British Home Secretary, a fellow by the name of Winston Churchill, took the people that were friends of, our, of the Allies and gave them countries. Now, that was under a caliphate, under the Muslim caliphate, you don't have borders. All you have is just the, the great jihad of the entire world becoming 
Muslim. And so if you have a, a leader that's not a spiritual leader, or if you have a boundary that's in violation of what the church is, is all, church, I say, what the mosque is all about. But at the end of the time, there was a fellow during World War I that went around trying to buy off these Bedouins to be on their side. And he was, he was called Lawrence of Arabia, but they called him the man with the gold because he would go buy these folks. And, of course, they're Muslims, so they don't feel obligated to keep their word. So they would switch back and forth all the time, and he'd have to go back and buy them again. Then they'd, they would, until finally, it, when the war ended, it's like musical chairs. When the music stops, who's in control? So then they went around to all the folks that were on their side and said, Mr. Fod, uh, how would you like to be king? And so you're going to be king of Saudi Arabia. And they, they drew all these artificial lines, and they created Syria, and they created Lebanon, and they created all these various places, Oman and, and Bahrain and things in Jordan, Transjordan. Uh, now, Churchill was prime minister in World War II, and the king of Jordan was being ornery. That's 20 years later. He, he said about the king of Jordan, he said, he sits on that throne in Amman where I put him one Saturday afternoon. In other words, he, he was a Bedouin until I put him up there and said, now you're going to be king. And, and so that, that, then they didn't know quite what to do with, with the Balkan region because they've got all these countries, individual here, and they don't get along. But it's been six months they've been working on this. Wilson has been out of the country for six months. The entire nation is getting very distraught at that. And so they, they don't know what to do with it. So they drew a big circle around it and called it Yugoslavia. Ah, good enough. And they all took off. Now, it's one, that's, one, that's one country as much as nothing, which is why I explained in 1985. And so, so they've always been going at each other. And, and Tito got control after World War II. And the way that Tito maintained control was when one of these Muslims and, and uh, whoever would come to a fight, he would bring him in. He'd say, now, you've got uh, two grandchildren, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, one of them's eight years old? Yeah, yeah, okay. Bring him in, shoot him, bang, drag him out by the heels. He said, now, I don't want this happening anymore. And you, you've got a brother, your brother, so, yeah, bring him, come in, shoot him, drag him out. And he maintained control through sheer terror, because if anybody got in his way, he, he just kept him under wraps. When he died, it's when all those countries came back again, as I told you, in, 19, in, in the late 1980s. But that's a byproduct of what we said in World War I. All of this came, came from that. In, in the Middle East, they made these individual separate countries. And one thing that they promised, they didn't deliver on, but there was a promise to Israel, that to the Jews, that they would get a country. Now, while we're giving all these Muslims these individual countries, we're going to give the Jews a country. And so this is the Balfour Agreement. And this paragraph right here is as important as anything that ever took place in history. It's signed by, by the foreign minister of Britain, uh, Balfour, and it, which he said that, the Jews would get their own country. But all through 1920, they didn't do it. All through 1930, they didn't do it. All through 1940, and so that was, it was the Balfour Agreement that were waiting to be made good when in 1948 uh, Israel decided that it would proceed. But we'll come back to that in a minute. So these are the individual countries that, that were made. Iraq did not fit. It was partly Kurdish up here. Most of this was was Sunni, and then this part was Shiite. Iran was the only Shiite country. About 15% of Muslims are Shiite, and they're primarily Iranian. And so what do you do with this area? Well, they, again, just like Yugoslavia, they drew a circle around it and called it Iraq. In 1957, when the king that they put in charge there couldn't keep anything together, and, and Saddam Hussein and other colonels overthrew him, the king flew from here to 
London when he landed after being deposed. He said in the tarmac, his speech at the airport, he said, Iraq is not a nation nor a people. It never has been. It never will be. And no matter how many National Guard troops the United States sends over to Iraq, we're not going to make it into a nation or, or a people. At the end, uh, during World War II, as you recall, which is 20 years later, by the way, is, which is not that far. Just think back 20 years. So World War I and World War II are only 20 years apart. So when, when Hitler takes over all of this, he doesn't, uh, you know what he does to the Jews. And they, they then, at the end of World War II, want to have their own country. Now, this space that they had, this little place of Palestine called Israel, I, I wanted to have this understanding. You look at the size of all these other countries. Israel looks to be pretty, pretty small, right? I mean, I don't know why they would they, they cut them a little bit of slack, but nope, they will not stand them. See, a, a, a jet flying across here, 11 minutes to cross the entire country. That's how, how small it is. But in, in 1948, these folks showed up with literally nothing. Many of them came on ships that when they hit the beaches, the ships would, they just ran them aground because they were so rickety. And then they would walk in and some of the people fled. They just fled their homes. You walk in and there was food on the table and everything. There was a fear that went in the land. The Israelis said, the, the Jews said, you don't have to leave. But the neighbors said, no, we want to drive them back into the sea. You come with us and we're going we're gonna to fight them. And so in 1948, they had the battle. How in the world Israel beat those folks? I'll never know. But Israel was born. The United States protected it. Eleven minutes after it declared its independence, the United States recognized it, which meant that now it had an ally. And uh, they were successful up in 48, 58, 68. In 1967, they had a six-day war. They tried to take them over again with the help of, of the Russians. And, and uh, uh, Abdul Nasser, who was the leader he was the Egyptian head, president, which was the premier country in the area. So they attacked Israel again, and Israel just swamped them. Um, but then in, in the... I beg pardon? <laughs> yes, God had to be watching this a little bit. Um, and, and so when, when, they, when they took over... Uh, anyway, so, so they won that, and then finally that embarrassed them all. So in 1973... They decide this time we're really going to take them. And uh, they, on the Yom Kippur War, they went around, brought all their troops to the border, said, we're just doing exercises. We're not going to hurt you. But when the Jewish family sat down for the feast at sundown, they were attacked. And within a matter of the first couple of hours, the entire air force of of, of Israel was destroyed. And then the tanks began to roll, and Israel began to disappear. Golda Meir, the prime minister, called, who would you call? <laughs> There's only one place to call, right? And so they're going to disappear within a matter of hours. And so they called uh, President Nixon and asked for help. And back in those days, the president couldn't go to war on his own. He had to abide by the Constitution. And so he, he, he was not... <clears throat> so he wasn't... It wasn't anything that, that he couldn't... Go, go to battle, so he sent, wanted to send supplies, and from the nearest sources, from Italy and from France and from elsewhere, and our NATO allies shut down our bases and would not allow us to transfer aid to Israel. 
Fortunately, just a few months earlier, the largest plane in the history of the world, the C-5A, had been delivered to the United States Air Force. And Nixon began sending supplies with refueling in the Azores, controlled by the Portuguese. And the Portuguese claimed they didn't know anything about it. And when everybody was complaining, they said, well, we'll look into it. But nevertheless, the Portuguese let us refuel in the Azores, sent aid, which was allowing Israel to survive. But, as she said, unless we get air cover, we can't do this. And we need air cover. Well, Nixon did not have constitutional authority to just go give them the Air Force. And so he called the best friend the United States ever had. There were times we got as low as eight votes in the United Nations. Iran was always with us. The most loyal friend America ever had were the Iranians. And he called, he called the Shah of Iran and asked him. They both had F-4s. The Israelis had F-4s and so did the, the Iranians. Ask him to give his Air Force to Israel with no promise of replacement or remuneration. But he could trust the United States. I mean, my goodness, the United States asking a favor. There is our friend. We'll be glad to help. And so he did. And Israel was, went over there, spray-painted over, over the symbols, and turned back the enemy, and Israel was saved. And this fella sealed his fate with the radical Muslims and imams of, of the Shiite empire. Well, but so what? He's friends of the United States. What else do you need? And so everything was fine until we uh, made a change in, in leadership. And uh, this fella from Plains, Georgia, uh, decided that he should, that the Shah should be overthrown, that he wasn't very nice, and that he just wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't good enough, and that uh, some people, these complaints that these people were making at the United Nations and all, he should be gotten rid of. In January 1st, 1978, in Tehran, Carter toasted him as a sea of stability, as an island of stability in a sea of chaos, which is absolutely true. The Midwest was in the, Mid- the Middle East is in chaos. That was the only country. He was the one that maintained control. The Iranians, who are Persians, have been the, the chief overseer of that area since biblical times, since Daniel was, was there. And they have always, the other countries have been Radical, Bedouin, destructive. They've had a, a, a genuine culture. In fact, uh, one of the most beautiful cities in the world was, was Tehran. And uh, that, the Peacock Throne, 2,700 years, the longest monarchy in the history of mankind, survived virtually untouched from biblical times up until the Carter administration. It couldn't survive the Carter administration. So he, he then uh, was cast as... On the side of the United States, Carter said that he he began to undermine him. First of all, economically, began to put sanctions so that they couldn't you couldn't do business with them. If you had a business in Iran, you couldn't get your money out or you couldn't sell your orders. And that began. And then he said something that to the naive they wouldn't catch it. Carter said this. He said, "We do not know whether or not the Shah can survive." If you and I said that, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't mean anything. If the President of the United States says it, it means have at him, because we're not going to protect him. In other words, we don't know if he can survive. Let's watch. And with that, it gave encouragement to all the radical Muslims. They went after him. He, he knew what was coming. If, if he gave down, his country would be destroyed. It would be the, it, it, you, you could Google a picture of, of Tehran in 1973. It's not appreciably different than anything you would see here. Strikingly attractive females dressed in all Western, Western cars, restaurants, uh, people sitting in open-air restaurants. I mean, just 
and then of course when they came in with the veils and, the, and just the destruction that took place and women can't sit with men and can't speak and all, all the things that go with it. So they said, well, who's going to replace him? And so Carter said, well, we think Khomeini. Now nobody knew who Khomeini was. He was sitting cross-legged in, behind a townhouse in Paris. He said, we think Khomeini might be a saint. And when the Shah refused to, still refused to leave, the president went out and held a press conference in the Rose Garden and said, we think the Shah should step down and literally kicked him out. He then piloted his own airplane, took two urns of his soil from his native land and took off. Now it takes about this much backbone to allow him to land in your country. And nobody had it except Anwar Sadat. And Anwar Sadat welcomed him in Egypt where he landed then in, in Egypt and shortly thereafter, as happens to many great people when things go haywire, he developed cancer and died a broken man a matter of a few virtually months later. Nevertheless, um, at the end of World War II, all of these individual countries had been formed, and in 1923, it was apparent to the radical Muslims that these folks weren't going to give their countries back. You weren't going to have a caliphate. You're going to, now you had Syria, and now you had Jordan, and now you had Saudi Arabia. And once these people like to be kings, then they're not going to give it up real easily. And so they met in Egypt, in Cairo, and formed a thing called the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood was dedicated to the destruction of these individual countries and the reestablishment of the Muslim Caliphate. Well, these folks then kept their eyes on who these Muslim Brotherhood folk were, and vice versa. And every time they would have a Muslim Brotherhood uprising, they would put it down. But then when Anwar Sadat had been so kind to, to the Shah of Iran, he then committed the unpardonable sin. That is, he made peace with Israel. And once he made peace with Israel, he's done. And so during a ceremony on the, celebrating a, a great achievement in Egyptian history, the Muslim Brotherhood on parade had loaded their guns, and as when they stopped in front of the presidential reviewing stand, they sprayed the reviewing stand, killing virtually everyone there, killing President Sadat, and winging Hosni Mubarak, the vice president, as he's diving off the back of the stand. He's injured and goes to the hospital for 10 days. He then becomes the president of Egypt, and then when he becomes president, he does to the Muslim Brotherhood what they had tried to do to him. That is basically the case up until June of 2009. And in June of 2009, and by the way, after, after the, the 73 war with, with Israel, with Israel they, um, um, they kicked the Russians out. And they said, enough of this. We're, we're going to go with the United States, and we're going, we're going to have investment, and we're going to create jobs, and we're going to live at peace, and we're not going to do all this stuff. We're going to leave Israel alone. And, and that's basically where it was. Let me, I'll, I'll give you another just a, a little bit of a side about how the Lord operates... Time is not as important to him as it is to us. (laughs) Let's just put it that way. So in 1948, my parents were driving down the road when it came across the radio that that Israel had been born as the Scripture said it would. Now, uh, it wasn't a nation when Christ was here, and so now Israel had been born in a day. And my parents pulled over the side of the road and rejoiced and praised the Lord and all because, and my dad was planning on building a, a grape arbor. And they, they understood that it reached full maturity after 20 years. And so he canceled the grape arbor. I mean, that's a waste of time. We'll be in heaven by then. Look, Israel's here now. And, and so, <clears throat> so then he proceeds on and, until 48, 58, 68. In 1967, they, 
they go to war, and they capture the Temple Mount. And so in our devotions the next morning, Dad's, he's got the scripture there, and he says, now it says here, it says, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So you go throughout all of scripture, and he always talks in the time of this king, and the time of this king, and this king, up until Christ comes. After Christ, he talks about the church, the Gentile age, which is the whole world. He said, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So now that they're back, when Christ was here, the, the Jews didn't control, didn't control Jerusalem, but now they control all of it, again, this means the Lord's going to be here next Tuesday a week. I mean, it's, obviously, it's, it's, it's all done. So that's 67, 77, 87, 97, 2007, 2007. It's been nearly half a century. So, but all of this is taking place according to Scripture. It just doesn't happen, happen overnight. So as the import was that the Muslim Brotherhood wanted to do away with Anybody who, opposed, who would not help them destroy Israel. So they went after, after Sadat and killed him. It lasted until the summer of 2009. In 2009, the President of the United States went to Egypt, to the same spot, invited the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood, most of whom were not given visas. They weren't allowed to travel. At the request of the United States, right? The United States is their friend. All their militaries have been supported by the United States. We're in a close relationship. But now they don't understand Carter and Obama and these people. So Obama says, I want all of the Muslim Brotherhood to come. And so he invites them from all over the Middle East, puts them in this auditorium. And I would encourage you to go online. You can go to the whitehouse.gov, one place. You can go to YouTube, any place else, and read what he said about America. I bring you greetings from, from the Muslim community in America. The Muslim community built America. And it, it describes all the, all the greatness and how honored he is to be here where the, it was first revealed. And it goes on and on and on. But the, the host, the president of Egypt, his host was disinvited to the event. He wasn't allowed to attend. Only the Muslim Brotherhood people were attend. Now, these are the people who want to destroy all these other folks. And that lasted up and then in 2010, in Tunisia, they made their first effort to overthrow the government. The United States helped the Muslim Brotherhood overthrow the government. Now they have one country. They then wanted the next year in Egypt. You remember where they had, had the chance and they took Hosni Mubarak, put him in jail, killed everybody else in his government. But the Muslim Brotherhood took over there. And then in uh, Christmas of 2011, in the summer, they went after, after the head of Libya, Mr. Gaddafi. Now, Gaddafi was a crazy man. And he uh, was anti-American, as you know, and he uh, was coordinated terrorism against the United States military in, in Britain, I mean, in, in Germany. And, uh, and Ronald Reagan uh, didn't like that very much. And so I'll just give you an example. Uh, he told Carter, Gaddafi did, that there's always a 12-mile 12, 12 border to every country. And so every, that, other than that, that's international waters. So he told the United States Navy that it was going to be 50 miles. You couldn't, so Carter said, okay, we'll do that. So then he said 150 miles in the United States. Oh, okay. Then finally he said 300 miles, which is out here in the middle of the Mediterranean. So the, the U.S. Sixth Fleet had to maneuver all around because he was just... <laughs> weakness invites aggression. And when America is weak, the aggressors proceed. And so on the first... As soon as Reagan became president, they came to him and, and they said, we have this plan whereby we're going to fly, go through here, through the Straits of uh, uh, Sidra. We're going to go through here in, in open waters. And uh, what if we're challenged? 
and Reagan made the decision, this is in March of 1981, you will respond in kind. You're not going to have Jimmy coming back with his thing over his shoulder and sitting up all night and worrying about it. Just, that's, that's what it's going to be. So in August, when they're doing maneuvers, the Libyan airplanes are coming out and they're going to fly over the American fleet. Nobody does that. You do not fly over an American aircraft carrier. So as they got closer and closer, they warned him. They said, if you, don't, if you come any closer, we'll take you out. And when they got right to the edge, he said, you know, one, one more and you're, you're gone. And they got right to the edge and, and the, the two MIG, Libyan MIGs peeled off rather than come against the, the, the naval battle group and turned and went off. But just to be cute, they fired their rockets off in the air. And 20 seconds later, they're floating belly up in the Mediterranean. And some of you may remember what happened was that, uh, that Reagan was in California, which is four in the morning. And Ed Meese, who is my prayer partner, we meet every Tuesday morning at seven o'clock, Ed Meese did not wake up the president. And then they weren't used to that. Under, under Jimmy, it just everything was, was made by, every decision was made by Jimmy. And so the idea that this would be done without even waking up the president. And I remember they, it was all in the news for three or four days until finally Reagan was going someplace and they shouted the question to him. Or, Don't you think you should be? He said, I have an arrangement that when we shoot down their planes, I sleep. When we shoot, he said, when they shoot down our planes, they wake me up. When I shoot down their planes, I sleep. So, <clears throat> well, <laughs> it, that, that, that sort of leadership began to change the whole world and people will always go to where the leadership is. And so these, as you know what happened during the 1980s, how America reasserted itself and, and all, the, all the rest. But Gaddafi, when he saw what happened to, to Saddam Hussein under George W. Bush, he got a little nervous. And so he called General Colin Powell, the Secretary of State, and said, what must I do to be saved? And, uh, and so... In, in 2005 and, and 2006, uh, Gaddafi cooperated with America in every way because he was one of the richest men in the world because he's one of the, the largest oil reserves. He's worth billions of dollars, but he can't go anyplace because he's under American sanctions. He can't fly to see his grandchildren in Paris. He can't go anywhere. So he wants out from under. What do I have to do? And so, he said, well, and so Colin Powell said, one thing, you've got to get rid of your weapons of mass destruction. He said, come get them. And so the United States came and got them and, and began to cooperate with America, which then again set him at odds with the Muslim Brotherhood. And so the Muslim Brotherhood, now they've taken over Egypt, now they've taken over Tunisia, so then they went after Gaddafi. And Hillary Clinton wanted to get rid of him. The defense minister, the Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, said there's no reason to do that. But nevertheless, she prevailed upon the president to let her go to war. And for the first time in the history of the United States, you had a Secretary of State announcing that they're going to battle. Secretary of Defense wouldn't give his resignation to leave five months later because he didn't want to over this, appear to be over this, but that was, that was when he was finished. Hillary made the announcement. We came in and bombed on behalf of the Muslim Brotherhood to install one of the most vicious, anti-American, anti-Christian operations. It's not a government. It's just chaos, absolute utter chaos in Libya. About a year later, Newt Gingrich and I are having breakfast in a restaurant at the Cincinnati Hotel in Cincinnati, and lo and behold, who should appear in the doorway but the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Now, that's America's supreme soldier. There are four people who have the, the codes to the nuclear arsenal, the president, the vice president, secretary of defense, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. 
And so we invited him to join us, have breakfast with us, and uh, he was making a speech a couple hours later upstairs, and so we're chatting, and I'm being, I'm being civil as long as I can be, until finally I, I, I said, Admiral, Mike Mullen, I said, Admiral, I said, your oath is the same as ours, right? You swear to uphold the Constitution. Yeah, yeah, okay. I said, you know the Constitution says that only the Congress can declare war, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, tell me, under what circumstances... Would you bomb a sovereign nation with no declaration of war or not even a declaration of emergency under the War Powers Act? The president can, can act in an emergency, but he has to request the Congress ratify it within 30 days or he has to withdraw. I said, without even a declaration of, of, of emergency under the War Powers Act. He sat there for about two minutes and never said a word. And the miracle is that Nuke didn't say anything either, which I didn't want him to. <laughs> and finally, finally he said this. He said, Congressman, um, it's up to the elected branches. Article 1, there shall be a Congress. Article 2, there shall be an executive. Article 3, judiciary. He said, it's up to the elected branches to assert themselves. And the truth is, he's right. He's right. For no congressman and no senator said or did anything and let her go off and bomb at will at the courtesy of the president. And that's, as I said, we didn't need a back, we didn't need a whole backbone. Two vertebrae would have helped. I mean, just, just, you know, almost begin anybody say or do anything. And so now the Muslim Brotherhood has control of all of the area. And then we have the election of 2012. And, and I'm convinced that if they've been able to do that in the last 18 months, by the time 2016 comes, the whole place is going to be burned up. And no one was more distraught or just a sinking than watching the election of 2012. Because I knew where they were headed and what they were doing. In January of 2013, the Egyptians overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood. And I met with a friend, the head of of the Senate, who came to the United States because they were rewriting the Constitution, and he didn't want to be there because either he or the general that overthrew him, one of the two of them was going to be president of Egypt. And, and he, he didn't, if he was that close to the Constitution, they'd feel like he arranged it for himself. So he was just hanging out. So we, we spent a lot of time together. And he showed me these pictures of, of the rallies in which they were overthrowing the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and as he's speaking in Arabic, he has a picture. Uh, he has the fellow from the Coptic Christian Church standing behind him. And you've, you've all seen this in Terrera Square. They had 35 million people all across the country. He said, by the way, 35 million. Obama called it a coup. He said, 35 million is not a coup. That's, it's a, that's an upright. But you, you have three to five million people in Terrera Square, and you have these big jumbotrons. And he, he, he showed me on his iPhone where he's speaking. And standing behind him is the Coptic Christian priest with this large crucifix, this very large, holding that so that anybody who saw any of those jumbotrons, any place they saw the Christian and the cross, they say, we're going to be civil again. We're not going to, we're not this Muslim radical stuff. And then he said another thing. He said, we are putting in the Constitution, we are putting the boundaries of the nation. He said, just to stick it to them, because they don't recognize boundaries. He said, so we're, we're going to let them understand where the boundaries will be in the constitution of Egypt. And so they overthrew it. The people that came to their aid were Bahrain and, and uh, the, the Emirates. I'll just give you a little side about why, why we don't... This is a battle between people who are civil and people who are Muslim radicals, who want to kill and destroy everything. The, head, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, remember I told you about Mike Mullen? His predecessor, Harold Shelton, 
who was who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs on September 11th. He lives not too far from us. We're at a restaurant together. And he told about on September 11th, 2001, he said, I got two phone numbers, or two phone calls. One was from the defense minister of Britain who said, we're with you 100%. The other one was from the defense minister of the UAE, United Arab Emirates, who said this. Now, these are, these are the Muslim countries that are civil and normal that are not these radicals. He said, you tell us who to hit, when to hit them, with you or without you. I'll wait to hear back. And he hung up. And Bush should have taken advantage of it and stayed out of it and let them do it, and it would have righted itself, but, but nevertheless. So, so those countries, the UAE, are now standing up to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, recognizing that the, the United States, who should have been their friend, is no longer on their, on their side. So we've gotten all the way through it with no more Muslim Brotherhood taking over these last four years. We're now having an important election coming up. If you and I make the right decision, we can undo this thing because righteousness can and will win. There's the only time in the history of the United States you've ever seen the leader of our nation bow down to a foreign power. It's in the Constitution that no American is allowed to be given a monarchical position. That is, if you are made a knight or any position of authority in a, in a monarchy, you, you, you uh, give up your American citizenship. Uh, the purpose is that we do not bow to man. Our rights come from God. And so this man had a, had a different idea. <clears throat> so uh, th- there's the battle as we stand. Uh, this is the area. There are nearly a billion people here. Freedom creates abundance. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Liberty creates abundance. Of these countries, 26 Arab Muslim countries, they don't make a single hairdryer, TV set, automobile that anybody would buy. The GDP, the gross domestic product, which is basically just oil. But the wealth that's created by those 26 Arab countries combined is less than half of the state of California. Wealth comes from the freedom that Americans have. 4% of the population of the world created more wealth than the rest of the world combined. This is a spiritual battle fought out on a physical plane. And you and I will choose the leadership to see who wins. And I'll just tell you this, I am optimistic. I really, really am. Uh, God held... uh, I thought we'd be a lot worse off right now than we are. God has just kind of held his foot against the door, I think, for the last 48 48 months. If we can get through this next year without too many more justices dying and things, and we can get some good people, we could right this ship. We can correct this thing. But it's going to take the full participation of all of us. And uh, I just pray that God's not finished with us yet. God bless. We've got a few more minutes remaining, and um, when we get a chance, we have a radio program that started uh, last Monday, uh, 11 states, uh, or 11 stations, 16 states, and we're going to interview at the back end. We're going to have you on that. And then this video that we've taken of this presentation, uh, Bob doesn't have this yet on CD or DVD. Oh, Israel, you just tell him to call back. And there's... There's Rob just throwing you under the bus. 
Um, now, I, I wanted to share this with you for, for those of you that are, are struggling, uh, thinking, well, we didn't even open the Bible. This is a church. I came to study the scriptures. This is out of uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12. David is assembling uh, what would be the greatest boundaries and uh, strength of the nation of Israel. It says he appointed of the sons of Ephraim 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men throughout their father's house, the half of the tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were designated by name to come and make uh, David king. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200. Speaks of the sons of Issachar who understood the times and what Israel ought to do. And for those of you who think that, that politics should stay out of church, you are poorly educated. You don't understand the scriptures. Because God has commanded that he has full authority throughout every vestige of culture. <laughs> People are really interested in this topic and they're calling. It might be urgent because it's going to your wife's phone now. <laughs> so anyways, what I wanted to share with you is... Um, we're at a, a critical juncture, and I'm 51 years old, and Bob is a year or two older than I am. <laughs> and, uh, and this is the most critical election in our lifetime. And I just want to share this with you. We just got back from South Carolina, which is going to be the bellwether state as to who will be the next president of the United States. Uh, he spoke there. I spoke there. And there's 85 million evangelical Christians in America, largest minority in America. There's 700,000 seats coming up for election in 2016. And of the Christians that go to church every Sunday, and pastors are what I call pietistic, they, they separate the, the secular from the holy, and they think that politics is dirty. They don't want to engage in politics, and they, they look at you like you're from Mars. We were just with 400 of those pastors in South Carolina, and they're starting to get it. Here in our community, they get it. And the idea is of the 85 million evangelical Christians in America, because of the apathy and the poor teaching from the pulpits, only 25% of those Christians vote in a presidential election. In a non-presidential election, it's 12.5%. And we lose every election by 7 million votes. And you, you, you tell me we don't do politics because it's dirty. Well, the church is dirty. And to say there's no difference between the parties. I, I, and honestly, it's irrelevant to me what party you're part of. Good government requires good people. And, and politicians are actors performing a script written by the audience. And, and we audition for that script. And the only people that are writing that script are the ones that are voting, participating in campaigns, putting forward godly people, moral people. And if you're apathetic, you're part of the problem. And if that insults you, I don't seek to insult you, I, I seek to convict you so that you're challenged. I want you to look at your children and your grandchildren and tell them we don't do politics. I want you to tell them that I'm going to leave a nation worse off than I received. And that Christ is going to, he's going to reign supreme. Yes, he will. But it doesn't matter if you're communist or fascist or socialist. 
I want you to tell them that you don't participate in the political process because there's no difference that you can make. And you tell the 70 million babies aboard in this country that we can't make a difference. You tell the rest of the folks, and, and think about this, if we, had, if we had held the same mindset in 1857, 1854, there'd still be slavery. It was Christians that started the abolitionist movement. 11 people in a congregational church in Rapon, Wisconsin, wanting to abolish slavery were laughed at, started a new party, and had an influx in the House and the Senate and got a president elected by the name of Abraham Lincoln. 650,000 people died on a field of battle, and he got a bullet to the back of the head. But the scourge of slavery was lifted from the warp and the woof of the fabric of our country because Christians did something. Apathy isn't going to rule the day. And, and, and if it preaches a church down to a manageable size, it, it saddens me, and I say that jokingly. But you want an actuary point? You want to know where you fit? I'm going to ask you now, who are your supervisors in the county? Who are your school board members? Who are your council members? If you don't have the answer to those questions, you need to. You need to know where they stand on life, on marriage, on private property, You need to know where their biblical position is in every one of those issues. Because you have a responsibility to your children and your grandchildren. And if we don't do it, we create a vacuum. And you see what happens with the vacuum. This man was a congressman in Ohio. He was slated and everyone believed he'd be the next president of the United States. But through, no, I'm serious, and through political chicanery, they ousted him redistricted his whole area. He didn't quit. He didn't give up. He tirelessly moves across the country and continues until the last breath of life, which is going to be 50 years from now. (laughs) More plus than minus. And I would just say to all of you, write the script. Do something. Do something. Study to show yourself approved especially you younger folks, the millennials. You, you just, you, you, you're apathetic about politics because everybody's promised you everything. And, you, and you're looking at all of your generation moving towards a socialist by the name of Bernie Sanders because it's hip. I ask you this, free college education, who's going to pay for that? There's nothing free. And, and socialism only works until you run out of the other person's money. God has created us through the Noahic Covenant to design government that protects people. And we have to understand that and study and be equipped and quit whining and do something. Now, those are hard words. And a lot of folks are like, I'm done with this church, maybe. <laughs> Thank you. But my, my thought is this. I don't want to go to my deathbed without fighting to make this a better place for my kids and my grandkids. And I'm not going to sit idly by while it's destroyed. And I am so blessed by you and your wife, and I thank God for you. Thank God for him.
Miranda, Alan, we're not going to do something. We're, we're not going to. I'm going to take questions, two questions from the audience, and we'll dismiss you because we're going to do two songs, and, and I want to do this. And it might show up on the radio, so it better be a good question. If it's a chowderhead question where you want to hear yourself speak, <laughs> don't talk. But if you have a solid question that we're going to be moved by, let's do it. Come on. Now, everybody's frightened. <laughs> no, any question? Anyone? Where? I'm sorry? Yes. The question is, how did ISIS fit into the Muslim Brotherhood? ISIS is just... I'm trying to think of what a proper term would be. There's a book that describes what's happening that's non-hierarchical. And ISIS, the various mosques said, you don't have to be a part of an organization. You don't have to be a part of those governments that the British set up in the 1920s. You are a jihadist. You were called by God to kill the, the infidel. Do it. And so they... Now they have mass media, so they can quote each other and tie it together and have a meeting. And, and if it weren't for Twitter and the Internet, uh, there wouldn't be any ISIS. But they have just simply said, we're not waiting. Uh, a handful of radicals, there aren't that many of them, but in, in a matter of thousands, we'll say, suppose there's 35 or 50,000 of them. That's the population of Shillicothe, Ohio. And we're allowing the entire United States of America and, and the Middle East to be tied up by Shillicothe, Ohio. Uh, but nevertheless, because... Uh, of their able, ability to communicate, they go around and, and act on their own. That's where, that's where they came from. They are separate from the brotherhood. No, they're a Muslim. They are, they are, they're not the brotherhood. No, they're not the brotherhood. The brotherhood is more structured. This is, you are a jihadist on your own. And you get two or three of you, then you've got your own little group. And it's as evil and dangerous as anything the world has ever seen. Jim? And, but remember, you cannot, you cannot defeat an enemy you're unwilling to identify. And so it needs to be called out and, and identified. And currently we, we have an administration that's unwilling to do that. Jim, wait, wait, Jim. Keep it short. All right. Happy Valentine's Day. The question is, other than prayer, what can we do as Christians to make sure that the Supreme Court is um, filled, the vacancy is filled by a, a godly representative? Uh, appointment has to be done by the Senate. The, the president, or the, yes, the president of the Senate, uh, the majority leader of the Senate, controls anything that comes to the floor. And so one person, Mitch McConnell, will determine whether or not the, the president's appointment is considered on the floor of the Senate. If he refuses to consider it, it'll be held over to the next president. And uh, whether or not he has the backbone to do that remains to be seen. He said yesterday that he would, but that was yesterday. And so uh, what, what we can do is we can encourage any Republican senator. He's the, he, there are 54 Republicans. Whoever has 51 votes runs the Senate. The rest of everybody can go home. So all the chairmen, all the bills are considered by the majority. He's the majority leader. He decides whatever the committee does. He appoints the committee, chooses the chairman. Whatever they do then comes to the floor. He decides when it comes to the floor. He's appointed all those chairmen. So they are elected by those folks. Now, there are two Democrat senators from from California, so they don't play a part in that. But any Republican senator that you know, he holds his position because they voted for him. 
And if you have any relationship with any Republican senators, plead with them to not bring a new appointment to the Supreme Court. And it rests on the backbone and and decision-making of one man, and that's Mitch McConnell, senator from Kentucky. Yes? Who should be the next president of the United States? I, I I will say this. I believe that the class of candidates this year is better than I've ever seen in my lifetime. That, that Jindal and Huckabee and, and, and Walker and Perry and all these folks are superior to virtually anybody we've had in the last 20 years. But they're all out. I'm telling my point. He's making his point. I'm making my point. That all of them are better. Now, if you want one out of that, I'm going to vote for Ted Cruz. And then when they take, if, if he is successful and Jindal goes at HHS and he was a health commissioner and, and, and Huckabee, secretary of, of education, and Perry, secretary of energy, and uh, Rubio as secretary of state, and Carly Fiorino as, as a trade representative. I mean, th- th- we could turn this country around in a minute. I mean, it's Tom, did you have your hand up? Okay, don't. Yeah, I, 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 everything in me was saying, don't call on Tom. But I'm glad I did. Yes. Okay, they, they can't do that. They're legislative. Let me repeat the question. Why can't okay. Congress uh, right. prosecute, prosecute Hillary. Hillary Clinton for what she's Because done? that's an executive function, and, and the attorney general has to do that, and that's controlled by the president, and he's not going to do that. This is a th- uh, war is something that is their authority, but they don't have the capacity to do anything beyond that. In fact, the law says that if a person acts in contempt of the Congress and they are cited by the Congress in contempt, the attorney general shall prosecute. And so when, when, uh, when Lois Lerner at the IRS went after all these churches and things and was found in contempt of the Congress, when the attorney general came up, Ted Cruz and some of them said, don't confirm her as an ex- unless she promises to, to perform the law, which says you shall, no option, you shall prosecute on behalf of the Congress. It doesn't have any prosecutors. You're the prosecutor for the Congress. You shall do that. And Mitch McConnell, our guy, he let her go through anyway, and nothing's happened of it, even though the law says that she must. So when, and why don't they go after Hillary? They do, the, the administration, the attorney general, and the president shall do what they want to do at this point. And there's nothing the Congress can do about that. Uh, two more questions uh, back here, and then I'll come to you. Go ahead. Is there, is there any action right now to hold our representatives accountable to do let, what they're called to do? Let me just speak in, in, in general terms, and I understand exceptions a lot, but let's just get to the bottom line. You never look to a committee for leadership. If you want to decide what color should these pews be, you don't get 17 people together and try to decide. Amen to that. 
Margaret Thatcher said consensus is the antithesis of leadership. Congress is made up of people who, and there's only two reasons you run for office, only two. One is to be there. I want to be sheriff. I want to be governor. I want to be mayor. The other is to do something. And everybody is a combination of those two, 70-30, 50-50, 20-10. Those that just want to be there tend to be the leaders because they don't ruffle any feathers and they just hang around there just to make everybody their friend. People who want to do something don't fit into that. And in fact, they either leave or, or quit or don't go in the first place. You never look to legislative bodies for leadership. They're, it's the antithesis of that. So you've got Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz says the whole country wants to get rid of Obamacare. So he gets elected senator, and they say, here's the bill that's going to fund Obamacare. Let's stop it right here. And everybody goes, Ted, we're not really doing this. We're just talking about it. What do you mean? So he stands up there and, and as, as a, give, gives a uh, filibuster and all, and people say, well, look, he can't get along with everybody. He fits in there as much as nothing. I mean, they don't want him, and he didn't want them. Now, let me just tell you about the Congress. Congress is weak, and it follows the path of least resistance. And you get a strong leader in the White House, and they're a piece of cake. So all we have to do is get a good leader. You're, you're not going to change the temperament. There's nothing you can do about it. You just replace with the same kind of people. That's what legislators are. You need a leader, you need an executive, you need a governor, you need a president who's going to do something. We get a good president, you put Ted Cruz in the White House, Congress will be no problem. They'll be scrambling to stand next to him. I consider Ronald Reagan a friend. I was a delegate in 76 when he got beat, et cetera, et cetera. I was with him in 68. I know how much they hated Ronald Reagan. He only got six members of Congress to endorse him up through the convention. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. And they hated him when he got there. Half of my class got beat in 82 just because of Reagan. People despised him. But he went over their heads, and they eventually cut taxes, did all the things that we're talking about, because they'll do what is in their best interest. Why? Because he was a leader. And if you've got a strong leader, Congress will be there. Don't look to Congress to be better. They're always going to be what they are. All right. It better be good because it's the last one. All right, pretty good. No, I want really good. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. No, 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 it's, it's, it, it is not in the best interest of the United States at this point. Let me just also say about, about, the, about the CIA, um, some of the finest people in the world are in the CIA, and some of the worst scumbags in the history of mankind are in the CIA. You just need to understand that. They're just filthy, evil punks. I was on the Intelligence Committee. There's only two, three places that all the secrets of the nation are assembled. One is in the Oval Office. The other is in the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. I had access to everything there was. When I was there, the man who became head of the Soviet Moscow headquarters, this man had spent 37 years in the CIA, worked to the most trusted individual in the CIA. And when he got there, he fingered every single asset that we had, turned it over to him, and wiped out 40 years of progress. He had waited his entire life to do that. He was a filthy, dirty traitor from day one. But he was, but he was a, moved up. So that's, that's who you deal with, with these kinds of people. That's just who they are. And there are, there are wonderful, wonderful patriots, but also there's a, rat, a nest of rats in there as well. So. And how did they get there? People are people. Good people didn't get in. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So who's going into the CIA? What young millennials? <laughs> All right. That's right. Well, we're at uh, two minutes and 30 seconds, so let me close in prayer and uh, get you home. 
And guys, go do something special for your wives. Lord, thank you so much for this time. And we thank you for Congressman McEwen and Liz. And we thank you for Miranda and Alan. And Lord, just an insightful day. And God, we've been challenged. And I uh, imagine that there are folks that are struggling over some of this. I get that. We don't seek to offend, but we certainly do seek to challenge. And I pray that we would uh, take what we've learned and we would apply it to bring glory to your name. We ask your blessing and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.